Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. So far in our study, Jesus has spoken to two of the seven churches to which this letter was sent. The third church along the postal route was found in the city of Pergamum, which is also at times called Pergamos. Pergamum was a great centre for learning in the ancient world. In fact, so many manuscripts were written there that the name for the material they were written on, parchment, actually comes from the name Pergamum. The city had a huge medical school known as the Asclepion, so named after the Greek god of healing. And you might be interested to know that the Greek god Asclepius was always depicted as holding a staff with a snake wrapped around it, and that symbol is still used for the medical profession today. Like Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum was not only a centre for emperor worship, but also had temples to other false gods. In fact, there was a huge throne-like altar to Zeus on a hill in the city, and we'll see a possible reference to that in what Christ says to them in the letter. Most importantly, this was the city from which the Roman proconsul of Asia ruled. He was there to protect and promote the government's citizens and interests, and he had immense authority. In fact, he held something that was known at the time as the Ius Gladii, which meant that he held the right of the sword. In other words, the proconsul held the power of life or death and could execute whomever he pleased. It's no coincidence then how Jesus reveals himself to this church. Let's look at chapter 2 verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Again, Jesus uses part of the description of himself from chapter 1, declaring that he is he who has the sharp double-edged sword. He's reminding them that it's not the proconsul's sword that they should be worried about. Christ is the ultimate judge, and his word is final. Christ immediately commends them for their works, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, as they dwell where Satan has his throne, which is very likely a reference to the throne-like altar of Zeus I mentioned earlier. The Lord commends them for remaining true to him and everything he stands for, and for not abandoning their belief in him, even though one of their fellow Christians, Antipas, had already died a martyr's death in that city. Jesus refers to Antipas here as my faithful witness. The English word martyr comes from the Greek word martus, which means witness. So many of Christ's faithful witnesses died for their faith that the word martus eventually took on the current meaning of one who dies for their faith in Jesus. Even under those horrible conditions, the believers in Pergamum remained true to Christ's name and held to their faith in him. These were people who had done well in their commitment to the Lord, and yet even so, Christ had a rebuke for some of them. 
Verse 14, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Like Ephesus, the church at Pergamum had people in their group who held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And like the Old Testament prophet Balaam, these people were leading God's people into sin, encouraging them to eat food sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Like Balaam, some within the Pergamum church were not willing to take a stand against the immoral culture around them, but rather accommodated it. Jesus urged them to repent, saying that if they did not, they would face judgment, the judgment of his sword, the word from his mouth, which is far sharper and more final than the sword of their Roman governor. And what was the promise to those who overcome? Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. For those who listen and obey, who truly trust Jesus, the Lord promises three things. He promises to give them hidden manna to eat. You'll remember that manna was the miraculous food God had given his people to eat during the time that they wandered in the desert in the days of Moses. It was there every morning for them to gather throughout their entire journey. Manna speaks of God's miraculous provision for his people. What might that have meant to the believers in Pergamum? Well, in the culture of John's day, many jobs were organized and dispensed by guilds or unions that people had to join if they wanted to work. Unfortunately, membership in these guilds meant following their rules, which included attending celebrations given in honor of the guild's patron god. At these feasts, members were expected to eat the food which had been sacrificed to the patron god and to fully participate in the immoral behaviour that was really the point of the party. Christ's followers who refused to engage in this kind of behaviour struggled with the worry of providing for their families if they did not compromise. The false teachers of the time were quick to say, like Balaam in the Old Testament, that it didn't matter what you did with your body, that God would understand. But here Jesus reminds them that they don't have to compromise in order to have what they need. He will provide for them. He has resources that they know nothing about. They can trust him and so can we. I've seen this at work in my own life when my husband and I lived in Africa. He worked as a manager for a company who asked him to do something illegal. They requested that he falsify a document so that they would be entitled to more government assistance than was really due to them. 
He asked the directors not to do that, but they insisted, and because it would be his signature on the claim, my husband had no choice but to resign. At that time, I was pregnant with our first child. I was very ill and was in and out of hospital for months. Without employment, we would not only become responsible for all of our own medical expenses, but the company also owned the house we lived in, and so we would have no home as well as no job. It would surely have been easy for my husband to think, God would understand if I obeyed my evil employer. After all, I have to think of my wife and my child. But my husband knew that God was calling him to obey him and not to compromise his integrity. There were no other jobs in the town at the time, and so we had to go into our own business if we were to survive. And for the next five years, times were really tough. It was not easy, but the Lord did miraculously provide for our needs. We often had no idea of where the money might come from for us to survive, but somehow it would show up just when it was needed. God gave us hidden manna to eat. The second promise Christ makes is that he will give those who overcome a white stone. In those days, a white stone was used to signify when a judge had voted to clear someone of the charges against them. But it was also used when an athlete won a sporting event. The victorious athlete would be given a Stephanos, or crown, and this white stone, which was their entry ticket to the victor's banquet later on in the day. Christ points out that on that stone that he gives, a new name will be written known only to him who receives it. This is so personal. We are each forgiven personally for our sins. The judge has given us the white stone, signifying that he has cleared us of the judgment against us and has made a place for us at his banquet table in heaven. And now that we belong to him, he gives us a new name, proving that we are not who we once were. Freed from sin, delivered from the world, ruled by Satan and his lies, we are truly and finally the new creatures he designed us to be. How must this have encouraged those who struggled to live in Pergamum? What a glorious hope to hold on to. In Revelation 2.18, Christ begins to address the corrupt church at Thyatira, and it's interesting that his longest communication should go to the smallest of the seven churches. The name Thyatira means unwearying sacrifice. This town was a small commercial center 35 miles southeast of Pergamum. It was known for its thriving textile industry as well as the manufacture of very expensive purple dye. This was a place full of wealthy merchants and so it was full of trade guilds that controlled the social life of the town. As we saw in Pergamum, each guild had a god that had to be worshipped by drunken dinners that became wild and immoral parties. It was hard for believers to live God-honoring lives in that kind of culture. The problem addressed at Thyatira, however, came from inside the church, as we'll see in a moment. 
Thyatira had a temple to Apollo, the sun god, and it is perhaps because of that, using a play on words, Christ reveals himself to them as the son of God, with eyes like blazing fire. He is the one who stands pure and steadfast. He sees all, and his judgment is the only thing that really matters in the end. Jesus instructs, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Emphasizing his own purity, Jesus commends them for their love, faith, service and perseverance. And he says that they'd grown too, for they were now doing more than they did at first. It seems that we can conclude that on the surface, the church at Thyatira was strong and flourishing, but Christ knew that there was something horribly wrong, for something was being tolerated that should not have been. Verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual impurity, into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. It's unlikely that the woman's name really was Jezebel. Jezebel was a queen of the Old Testament who had lived in the time of Elijah. She was a foreigner who'd been married to King Ahab of Israel and she introduced that nation to Baal worship. She was so wicked that no one was given that name again. You can read about her in the book of Kings, but she was so steeped in immorality, it seemed that the Lord calls this person in Thyatira Jezebel so that the people would understand just how evil she was and how her ideas of worship were also false. The problem was not that she was a woman who was teaching, because there were many other women in the New Testament who did that, such as Priscilla, for example. It was not that she was teaching, rather it was what she was teaching that was the issue. Though she called herself a prophetess, someone who spoke messages from God, she was misleading the Lord's servants and encouraging them to compromise their faith in order to earn a living. She argued that it was perfectly fine to go along with the world's standards in the interests of business and commercial prosperity, maintaining all the while that the Holy Spirit would preserve them from any real harm no matter what they did. In essence, she was giving them permission to practice sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols if it helped them get ahead. But Jesus strongly disagreed with her teaching. He declared in verse 21, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Apparently, Christ had already warned her he'd patiently given her time to repent, but she'd refused to do so. And unfortunately, there were consequences for disobeying Christ. He would cast her on a bed of suffering. Her followers 
Those who commit adultery with her would also suffer intensely if they didn't repent. And it's sobering to remember that all sin is really adultery against God in the end, not just sexual immorality. There had been many kinds of sins committed in following this kind of compromise, and all are offences against the holiness of God and his love for us. In verse 23, he says, he will strike her children dead. And I think the meaning of that is symbolic and it is twofold. Her children, in other words, her followers, will be judged and separated from God for all eternity. That spiritual death we talked about last week. And also the things that her ministry produces The fruit of her teaching will not prosper in the end, but will die. And then Christ says that he sees and he will repay. When we began to study the letter to Thyatira, we saw that anyone coming into that church for the first time would have believed it to be full of life and fruitful in every good work. No doubt, those who prospered in business because of their compromise with the world gave generously to charitable funds. They looked like real Christians. No doubt, Jezebel seemed to many to be a wonderful person, a fine prophetess. The point here is that the risen Christ can see beyond the outward disguise. He is the one who searches hearts and minds of people, and he will repay each according to their deeds. I want to be clear, though, that Christ doesn't mean that our salvation is based on our efforts or on our ability to earn God's forgiveness. But the way that we live our lives on a day-to-day basis proves what we truly believe. Remember Ephesians 2, 8-10 says that it's by grace we've been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. As genuine believers, we do still sin from time to time, but God's word tells us that he is faithful and just to forgive us continually. It can be a daily struggle, but what matters is that we continue to repent and to ask his forgiveness and then to stop repeating the offense. But You know, if sin is our lifestyle, if our overall pattern of living is contrary to the commands of Christ, it probably indicates that he is not really Lord of our life and we need to examine ourselves honestly. The encouraging thing is that not everyone in Thyatira was following this Jezebel's false doctrine. And so Christ encourages them to stand firm in verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. Apparently, Jezebel's doctrine included the idea that if you knew the depths of sin and the deep secrets of Satan, you would appreciate salvation all the more. Doesn't that rather sound like Satan in the Garden of Eden long ago as he tempted Eve? The tactics of the enemy have never really changed. 
Christ says to these faithful ones that they are to hold to the truth until he returns. We must have a heart for and a commitment to truth. To those who overcome, he says, to him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I've received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Remember the name Thyatira meant unwearying sacrifice, and that is exactly what Christ is calling them to. Those who persevere steadily, doing Christ's will to the end, are promised great authority over the nations. Later chapters of Revelation speak about this. When Christ returns, it seems that those who belong to him will reign on the earth with him for a period of time. In what is known as the millennial kingdom, Jesus will rule over the earth with a firm hand, which is the symbolism behind the iron scepter. And just as God the Son has received authority from God the Father, those who belong to Christ will be given authority also. Jesus concludes his message to the church at Thyatira by saying that he will also give overcomers the morning star. Revelation 22.16 reveals Jesus himself as the bright morning star. So think of what a symbol of hope the morning star is. The sky is always darkest just before dawn, and it is then that the morning star appears. So the promise of the morning star is really the promise of Christ himself. No matter how dark things might get in this world, he is our hope. The next church along the postal route was Sardis at the beginning of Revelation chapter 3. Sardis had been one of the greatest cities in the world. It was located in the fertile Hermas Valley where the muddy soil was sprinkled with gold deposits. This city where the people focused on wealth and prominence, had at one time been ruled by a very rich king called Croesus. Perhaps you might have heard of the expression as rich as Croesus, used to describe a very wealthy person. Well, that expression came from this very wealthy former ruler of Sardis. Part of Sardis was built on the side of a mountain and it had a citadel that was virtually impregnable. It could not be conquered. However, in the course of its history, the fortress of Sardis had been taken twice by their enemies. How could that have happened when they were in such a strategic position and so well fortified? Well, the guards of the city had felt so secure that on both occasions they had fallen asleep and the stealthy enemy easily conquered the city. This fact will play into what Christ tells them in the letter. Sardis became known as the dead church because of what Jesus had to say to them. Look at chapter 3 verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Christ is the one who has the seven spirits of God. And as we've learned before, this can also be translated as the sevenfold spirit of God, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit and the seven attributes he has, as mentioned in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. He is the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, counsel, power, and knowledge. And He is the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is Christ's alone to give. And that's important because it was only through the Holy Spirit that this church could receive life. Jesus declares that he knows their works, and though they had the reputation for being alive, he knew that they really were spiritually dead. They did not have the life of the Holy Spirit as they should. The church at Sardis was not troubled by false teaching, for they were too lazy to even consider those things. They weren't persecuted either, which just goes to show how watered down their faith had become. It was as if they'd become so comfortable that they'd fallen asleep, just like those gods in their history. In verse 2, Jesus tells them to wake up. They need to get back on watch because they were in great peril from their spiritual enemy. Interestingly, the name Sardis means remnant, and apparently from what Jesus says, there was a small remnant even within this group where the life of the Holy Spirit still flickered. And Jesus calls for them to strengthen what remains, for there was still much that they could accomplish in the power of the Lord. But how were they to strengthen that small flame of the Holy Spirit? The answer is found in Christ's three commands in verse 3. He tells them, Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I will come upon you. Firstly, they were to remember what they had previously been taught about Christ and the life that he wanted them to live. Secondly, they were to obey the teaching that they'd received. And the words in Greek there actually mean that they were to guard what God had given them. And again, we see the Lord reminding them of the city's history in that. He was anxious that they would learn from the soldiers' mistakes in the past. They were not only to guard what they had been entrusted with, they were also to repent. They were to change the direction they were going in and turn back to God. Though the situation was grim indeed, Christ does find a reason to commend them. In verse 4, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels." Even in Sardis, there were some who had not been contaminated by sin, and Jesus promises these things for all overcomers. We will walk with him dressed in white, meaning that we'll be clothed in the purity that comes only from Christ himself. 
our names will never be blotted out from the book of life. We will learn more about this later, but this is Christ's register in heaven of all who belong to him. Our names are written in it when we ask Christ to be Lord of our lives, and they, once there, will never be blotted out. And Jesus also promised that he will acknowledge us as his own before his Father and all the hosts of heaven. Jesus then concludes with emphasizing obedient hearing. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those who truly hear God are those who do what he says. It's interesting to me that this church had no accusers, no struggles, no persecution, no false apostles, nothing. But that wasn't because they were doing everything right. Only a few of them were commended for that. It was because, like those lazy soldiers in their history, they were fast asleep and close to being destroyed by an enemy they didn't even know was there. But Jesus cared about them enough to shout to them, Wake up! Start doing the good you know to do because I'm coming and when I come, I will acknowledge you as my own and you'll walk with me in righteousness. That's quite a wake-up call, right? Let's not hit the snooze button. Let's get on with living with him and for him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much. You've called us to represent you well, and I pray that we would live worthy of the calling that we have received, and that as we do that, Lord, you would provide everything we need to maintain a holy life. To the glory of Christ's name, it is in his name we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.